Tilbach. In the spring, we hook up the plows to prep the long resting soil for the coming crops. Fresh nutrients rising with each till of the earth to breathe life into a bountiful harvest. Crack open our Maybach and enjoy this cellar-aged beer. Well, I just cracked one open, and I'm sitting here with my main man, Alex DeFrancesco, on uh, DeFrancesco Farm in Northford, Connecticut. And he was the master brewer of Tilbach, among other, other very, 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 very fine brews. So, Alex, uh, please tell me the story. What's the backstory on it? The the backstory on Tilbach, um, it's your classic Maybach. I love brewing all different kinds of beers, and this was one that you know I want to do like a long term aged one. Oh yeah, I, I'm just watching your mouth right oh, now. Man. <laughs> that reaction you're just doing right now, like a Maybach. This one we aged. Uh, for seven, eight months, even before we bottled it. So after it was done fermenting, aged it in my cellar, and then brought it up, bottled it. And as we're bottling it, my, my friend and I were, were just tasting it. And he's like, this is good, even about carbonation right now. And since then, it's been in the bottle for at least month, month and a half. Simple malt recipe, simple hops in it. All we had, all I had to do was add time to it. Let M- Mother Nature and natural time progression take over, and you get the aged product as you're drinking it right now. <laughs> now, speaking about Mother Nature, you got a little uh, hop farm action on here. You said we do. Well, we how do. many acres in the total farm? Is it like ten? No, no, no. So the the and entire farm, farm right? and, and my, my family's total farm so I'm, I'm fourth generation we're raising the fifth generation now and we've been going for over a century in in connecticut with our farm and we do usually in the summertime about 130 active acres of vegetables and fruits in the summertime in addition about Six well, and a half, seven acres. <laughs> yeah. And, and on top of that, the six and a half, seven acres of the greenhouses in the spring and fall. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and then so you, you so set right aside, that, yeah. <laughs> you set aside uh, an acre to, just to grow hops. But I, I, I just want to say, it's like, you know, where it begins yeah. is with the water. And because you're a farmer, you know, you test water and then it's exactly. about the soil and you guys constantly test your soil. So you're already primed for, you know, the hop farm story. Exactly. And that, that's the thing. It's like people don't realize that Connecticut used to do a small scale um, back in the 1800s. They had commercial style farms for hops. Uh, farmers as a way for them to diversify and the, the community of pubs and brewing back then, you, you almost had like a pub every town, every other town. People, that's, that's what they had. You didn't have big Sam Adams or big uh, Budweiser and all of that. It was, everything was made local. Like that's like how a lot of stuff was back in the 1800s and stuff like that. And back then, New York was the main breadwinner doing like almost like 95, 97% of all the hops in, in the, on the East Coast. You had Massachusetts, I think by the end of the 1800s, they're only doing like 100 acres 
um, and you had Vermont and Maine doing some. So you, you had a small acreage here and there with Connecticut. Like you look at Devil's Hop Yard, there's still farmers. One of our good farmers that we know um, remembers his his father and him remembering when it was still there. So a site you could still go visit. Um, and you just have the, the different documents showing when, like even England, uh, the United Kingdoms, they had a shortage of hops back in the 1800s. And their government allowed them. They took the tariff off importing hops and allowed them to bring it in from New England. And you would see the stamps on the different crates of New York, Vermont, Mass, Maine, Connecticut. What varieties were there? We don't know because back then they didn't keep those documents, really. It was, it was, it was our grandfather, great-grandfather varieties. People don't appreciate nature going out to see what the remnants of what Connecticut was back then. Because like you see, like all of the stone walls in the Connecticut, those are all remnants from when we had pastures in the 1800s before Connecticut became forested again. When I was back, like in my radio days, interviewed uh, someone who was from the UK mm. and her mom comes to visit here, you know, every year. Yeah. And they were on the river in their boat. She goes, you know, every time I come here, this reminds me more of England than mm-hmm. England is now. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how it used to be, and it's like... That's I'm the thinking, countryside in England, yeah. Yeah, that's why they called it New England. That's one of the reasons why we'll get to it down later on in the um, as we're talking, but why I'm going to England right. this week coming up. Tomorrow. For, tomorrow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to check out their hops and everything, and um, hopefully... Hopefully, Connecticut will have English varietal hops growing by 2017 growing season. That's what we're looking at. That's one of the things I'm working with in the Connecticut Hop Growers Association right now. But Awesome. Tell me about the, the relationship between the water and the soil, because that marriage is, it is, is where it begins. It's very important, because like hops, if anyone's seeing a wild hop grow or has done it as a hobby, you can see like when they start growing, they grow like weeds and especially like a mature plant in like June, July could easily go grow a foot a day if they have the right nutrients um, and the adequate water, but they're not soaking and drowning in water. Neither. It's that right balance. And there, there, there are nice vines that would just suck water up like a straw um, very water intensive. And as long as you give them those right nutrients, they're going to grow phenomenal for you. Uh, you keep the water off the actual herbaceous part of the plant. Uh, keep it down to the roots and on the soil and you're all set. Now, but if you get that standing about, water. You said adequate, adequate water. Break down what that is. And how do you find out if your water is adequate and if it's inadequate, What adjustments can you make to make it adequate? Well, the one main thing, uh, and we actually touched basis on this with um, one of our guest speakers at our Connecticut Hop Growers uh, first annual workshop, um, Steve Smith over at uh, Smith Farms, uh, Hop Farms in New York. He's like the the godfather of hop yards is what a lot of people were telling me when I was learning about them earlier this year. He helped me make my hop yard, helped design it, and get the materials for it. And um, he was even saying, with hops, adequate water, 
if you have an irrigation system, and they do need an irrigation system, you right, can't just they plant don't them. Drown in it. They don't want to be saturated. They don't want to be drowning in it, but you can't just let them go wild and in a dry period, a dry year, you don't give them anything. They're not going to do anything for you. But he's saying if you choose to do a pond, you have to watch the pond allergy and the pond scum because that you don't want going on the plants. So you want like a clean water source. Otherwise, you got to do some purification when you're doing your irrigation pipes and you're getting to the plants. And with that, they'll suck up easily. Each plant could probably go a gallon, two gallons a day easily. No issue at all. I'm a mature plant. Now apply that to an acre. An acre, you're looking at 800 to 900 plants, depending how densely uh, you planted those varieties. How many plants do you have? So that acre, it's a little less than an acre up there. We have about... 850 plants up there and i did a special design on our irrigation system i took and this helps being doing the floral culture that we do with the greenhouses i did a special design rather than doing a standard drip tube irrigation that you'd see like when people do uh vegetable crops with the black mm-hmm. plastic and they do the drip irrigation tube underneath it uh-huh. i did it so we took the tubes for our hanging basket line and punched the holes adequately spaced for the hot plants so that a dripper specifically, so water wouldn't be wasted, it'd go right for the plant. And then that way, whenever I do have to roll up that irrigation tube, I just simply roll it up, store it for the winter time. Or if I have to do like a fire treatment in the springtime for mildew or stuff like that, I can easily do that. I don't have to worry about cooking my irrigation tube or whatnot. And it's all set. And that way I know when we irrigate, the the fertilizer run through the, the water system is going to get there. Um, it's going to help keep the nutrients going to the plant. And if we do ever have to do a systemic treatment for like aphids or leaf hoppers or mildews or stuff like that, you have the option of doing that. Because um, cool. those, those, those types of uh, plumbing and irrigation systems are a lot easier to maintain, clean, and just smarter way to go. Um, yeah, they cost a little more at the start, but sometimes spending a little extra money at the start is a better investment long-term. Right. Um, yeah, but going into now the nutrients, each variety of hops has different requirements. Uh, some have various for pH ranges, what they like, uh, different uh, fertilizers that you would use. Uh, for us, uh, we lucked out that field is a very nice loomy soil. Uh, when we were digging the, for the poles, five feet down, the biggest rock that we came across, now this is Connecticut, the biggest rock we came across was maybe if you took like a big softball. That's yeah. how big that we had. And A grapefruit? Yeah. Um, and Connecticut's usually rocky. The mm-hmm. rest of our farm is is you have the rocks um, and you hit them or you might have to you chip on the, 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 the harrow or the cultivator. You got to fix those and everything. Um, but there it's unique because... There's a ledge in the tree line right below that. So we're thinking that was a nice glacial till collection area of just all nice loom and everything. And the problem is that field we can never really use because it was so close to the woods and so high up that deer would just go in overnight, whether it's uh, the vegetables, the peppers, the tomatoes, and clear it out. So it would always stay as like a hay field or a wheat field um, that we have neighboring farmers take care of and everything like that. And so I got the idea because I started home brewing first. 
as being a farmer, growing up as a farmer, um, got the idea, well, can we grow hops in Connecticut? I did my research a couple years back, convinced my brother to let me do a test yard even before this acre. And I, he's like, you could do the test yard. This is your small section. Uh, do it on your own time. And you're not allowed to spend anything. The trees are up there. <laughs> Go cut yourself your own trees. Uh, there's spare two by fours over there. So I wasn't allowed to buy cables or anything like that or the core wire. I had to jimmy rig a test yard of 50 plants to show. I knew they were going to grow, but I had to show them more so to show my father that we could do that, this. Yeah, that you can do it. You exactly. Know what you're doing. So then last last fall when I got the, the whole field prepped and everything to do it, we put did the acre, got that all set up. And I was thinking, because deer don't like hops. They they and don't. That, they don't. Huh? That's the kicker. And there really isn't research on it to show using hop yards as barriers to other fields on the farm. But I'm looking, I'm like, well, if anyone's touched a hop plant or just brushed against it when like you're hiking or picking, you know it's the texture on it. They have the small burrs on it and the hooks. And it, it hurts you. So imagine a deer eating that and it's going into their mouth orifice. That's going to be like giant sandpaper with hooks going at, right. at you. So it's going to hurt them, let alone they're bitter to them because of the, the, the alpha acids, the beta acids in them. And with that, it's a twofold against it. So I'm like, why don't we just put this yard here? This giant yard that's growing, that's distasteful to them, might serve as a uh, deterrent right. for the lower fields. And, like, would you walk through a field that tastes like crap to you just to get to the food? Or would you go to the, the farm next to that instead? Exactly. <laughs> so it was like my the, the, the neighboring farm might be like, hey, why do I have all these deer now? But, <laughs> um, so we're seeing on that. And I'm, I'm working with some of the universities and the experimental station to see if this actually does work for the deer deterrent. But it's an added perk. Yeah, it is. Um, That's great. Now, with growing hops and everything, you have your nutrients, you have your water, and even on top of that, you still got to work with Mother Nature. Because right. Mother Nature, sometimes she's kind, other times she's a real bear. And you look at this year, it started wet and cool and damp in May. Right when the hops were coming out of the ground, or if anyone knows, starting this year, combating that. And that was perfect, like 60, 70 degree weather, moist, damp for mildew to start. And you even looked at other crops, like the tomato blight, potato blight came in early in the state. And the mildews on the hops came in. There's some farms that had it and New York had it. And then Mother Nature reversed and then it went dry. It did hot and dry. Yeah, the cool nights, but it just went dry. So it helped people that had the mildews and prevented it from spreading. But then you had the pests that came out, like um, the two-spot spider mite that likes it nice and dry and everything. If you actually have excess water on the plants, it'll kill the mites. But then you got to worry about the mildew. Oh, my so God. That, so it's a constant it's a back and, It is. It is. Constant um, adjusting. Now, the, the good thing is there are a lot of aphids and leaf hoppers out there, as we've seen in a lot of the crops this year. And that we could treat systemically. Um, and do that and everything. And it's just leafhoppers was a bear last year for anyone doing any any kind of crop. They're in hay versus to all the way to the hops. And it's there's always something. It's, but it's, it's none a of crop. these pests are new. I mean, they're no, they're pests that you know what to look for. You know exactly. like the conditions that they 
thrive in. Exactly, yeah. So you know it's like these are the right conditions that you're going to see a spike. It's like the same natural thing you see with the prey-predator dynamic. Right. When you have a lot of deer and then you see the coyotes come up and everything. Right, and it exactly. goes down. It's going to be the same thing with environmental conditions. And farmers who are farmers, been farmers, realize this. They see these cues. People that just go into a farming business um, or just are getting into like the hop business might not have that edge. But that's the good thing because we have our experimental stations in the state. We actually have the oldest experimental stations in the country. Uh, very smart people. Uh, you met James before oh, that's yeah, leading yeah. The, the, the research on the hops for Connecticut in this area. And he's a wealth of knowledge. So if we ever do have questions on stuff or any farmer has questions on stuff, you simply give them a call, send them pictures. I'll come down check it out. And you can easily remedy the issues that you might be having just to make sure it's all right. This is what we got to do and stuff like that. Now, after you're growing your hops and everything, and they're, they're kind of like setting up a vineyard. They take three, five years to fully mature start getting nice yields on them. Three three to five-year growth period is when you really start seeing those yields coming out. And with that, you'll get a nice, bountiful harvest. On average for varieties, you do like a 1,000 dry pounds an acre, give or take. Some varieties do less, some do more. And depending on your brewers, now most brewers in the country, let alone the state, use hops as a pelleted form. Right. Uh, and the reason why is if you do a fresh batch... You need a lot more hops, and like with anything growing from season to season, uh, those hop characteristics are going to change slightly. So it's going to be hard to replicate that recipe if you do a fresh batch. And because you harvest once a year, it's going to be a one-time year thing. One hit, and you're done. Whereas you then dry your crop, your harvest, and you have your whole leaf, or then you go the next step after that and you pelletize it and make the pellets. Going from whole leaf to pellets, you reduce the volume of the hops by three-fourths. So it's, uh, it only takes a quarter of the space up. Most brewers have the recipe set up using pelleted versions. And by using pellets, you could put it into your wort that you're creating at the time when you're, when you're brewing. Mm-hmm. And with that... They dissolve, whereas using a whole dry leaf cone, you got to put into a bag to make sure it doesn't go through your system and clog your plumbing. Right, clog everything. And you got to call Rotorua to unclog everything. It's a big pain in the neck. I've seen some breweries even told me they try experimenting with dry whole leaves, and it's a nightmare to have them clog everything. They're like, never again. What hops? Well, first of all, what hops did you plant in your my hop yard yard and why how i got down to my list i did this year and there's some i wanted to add in addition to what i I have planted but what i always tell people that are interested in growing hops in connecticut is or just hops in general wherever you are is all right talk to your local breweries because these are the people you're going to be working with when you harvest your crop and see what they want Mm -hmm. make a list of those varieties and take that list as your main reference sheet and look at all those varieties and which ones are have a decent resistance they're not immune but decent resistance to pests mildews disease by choosing the ones that have a moderate to higher resistance it's going to be easier for you to transition into a hop yard and to raise. Now, like I said, it's they're not immune to those things, but it gives you an edge right? for doing right. the farming aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, might give you an extra week. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> the know? thing. It might be overnight, boom, it's done, versus you have the extra week where it's right. like, all right, I could get the stuff, 
treat it, help it, and save it. And like one of those one of those varieties that people are interested in and a lot of brewers use is Cascade. Pretty susceptible to the, the mildews. And if you let uh, infestation of pests get out of hand, they could devastate it. So you got to be really watching it. Uh, whereas there are other varieties, and this is how I made mine, is because I went from what I use in my home brews and the contract brews I'm doing to what my brewers want. And then I looked at what's the moderate resistant ones, what are, what are going to be easier for us to do. I did my list, and from there I went, all right, this is the space I have to do. I want to do two rows of this. I want to do a row of this and everything. And with that, I did a list of seven varieties I finally did and came up with from the person that I was buying my plants from. And that's a whole other subject. Do you buy plants or do you do rhizomes? Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> but the varieties I did, uh, I did. I went old school for some of them. Uh, just because it's those are the ones I like and tend to be the backbones of a lot of the brews. They're not the hoppy IPA Citra Amarillo that have patents on them that we couldn't even get to begin with. That everyone's like, can you grow this? I'm like, no, it's got a patent on it that's going to be a royalty up the butt. Or one farm in the world only grows that. That's why it's so expensive to use. <laughs> but uh, Is that true? Only one farm in the world? For... Amarillo, yeah. Amarillo, there's one farm that has a patent on it, and they're the only farm in the world out in the Yakima Valley, Pacific Northwest. They're the only farm that grows it because they have that patent on it. Now, when that, how do you now when that patent's up, more people will be, probably be able to, to raise it, but you figure when you plant it, you're looking three, five years down the road to get the yield. Wait, so when is the patent? Do you know how long the patent uh, for? It, it varies. Through the grapevines, I think thought it was supposed to be like in 10 15 years but it varies because I mean, like is it a hybrid How do you well that's what it was it was a hybrid oh, so okay. there's something that came up but the, like with crops it's the same thing like with the apple crops there's there's ones that universities made hybrids and they have a patent on it and the apple farmers out west have to pay them the royalties and it's like all right is it profitable for us to raise this one or not the the guys that have the patent on that particular variety of hops choose not to allow other people to raise it. So they have a monopoly on yeah, that one they variety. Yeah, they want to monopolize. Exactly. Yeah. But that's why it's so restrictive. Where Citra, there's a lot more people growing it, but it still has a patent on it. But that's one reason why I did, for my own main hop yard, is I did the grandfather hops. I did the classic hops. Give us so I did. You said seven, right? Yeah, it's about uh, seven that I got there. So I did the Sterling, Tatong, the Tanger. I always pronounce that one wrong. Uh, Northern Brewer, uh, Mount Hood, Crystal, Kent Goldens. And I know I, I poo-pooed on it before, but yes, I do have Cascade because my, my brewers want it. But I, So you took a chance. I took a chance, but how I planted it, I isolated it. So if I do have to rip out that row, it's going to be very easy and it's on the edge. So that if I do have to treat it somehow... It's right on the edge. I could very easily hit it with any kind of treatment need be rather than going in between the different rows and everything and being more difficult to treat. And how is it, it coming along, the Cascade? Um, all the varieties are doing well. I also put on edge so it got more airflow, so it'd be a, lo- a lower risk on the mildews. Actually, um, airflow. That's another thing. So water, important. soil, Airflow. I Airflow. remember that from the workshop. Exactly. Airflow. Because um, you, if anyone looks at pictures from Yakima Valley or all over the world, you see hops growing on trellis systems that are 
traditional tall trellis. You're looking at 18, 20 feet tall uh, with those giant telephone poles in the fields and hooked up with all wires and doohickeys, setting them up. And then people train them with core wire, coconut wire, um, from the ground to the top. And the classic one that you see on farms that are like over half an acre, an acre or larger, you, you see the classic geometric V-style trellis systems. And that's the reason why you space your plants so far apart is you allow airflow in between the two plants. But when you do the V-style, you have to space those rows now about 12, 14 feet apart. Depending on your equipment, what you can fit through and everything, 12 feet is very tight. 14 feet is usually traditional, allows good airflow between the different rows. And when you do the V-style, you go from the middle of where the plant is, and you go usually foot and a half, two feet to the left, foot and a half, two feet to the right, when you train those up to get the V. And it opens it up, so you have airflow in between those vines growing from the crown of the plant to the top of the cables that you're training to grow up. And you space them three, three and a half feet apart from plant to plant to get the airflow going through. So it's not just a continuous sale of vegetation. It has those pockets so the airflow can go through. And on top of that, once the plants get big enough, you're going to clean the bottom four feet of leaves from the, 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 the ground to about four feet to prevent, if you were going to get mildews, usually it starts from the base and climbs up. You cut that ladder out of the, the picture. That way you can't just hop from the ground where it's damp and everything up top to the, the canopy. Because when you get the mildews in the canopy and the cones, that's when you really... It's almost game over at that point. <laughs> it's going to ruin the cones, the flavor, and plant's going to take a beating. So not only... Okay, so you have the water, you have the soil... You have the airflow. Mm -hmm. You also need to be aware, probably because of this airflow thing, it's like where you're going to position your rows. I mean, don't you have to worry about like how, Lighting. like Mother Nature, exactly. like where the wind comes in, if it's coming in from, you know, east to west or north to west. Exactly. Or, it's, you know, do you place it horizontally or vertically? So the mm -hmm. place Or on a diagonal. On and a diagonal. Yep. It's, it's all depending on where your parcel of land is and how pretty much the wind is in that area. And like, like Steve was saying this too back, back in the, the workshop is it's going to vary from place to place where you are in the country and all that and everything. Because you don't want to create giant sails that the wind's going to go right into. You want right. to do it so the wind blows through the roads. Through the roads. Because um, like... People, especially like Connecticut, you'll you'll like remember like you get sometimes microbursts, and if you have a microburst come down, it's gonna take out some rows. You're gonna get some trees snapping if it's going against it. But if you did it right and you lined it up, it goes right through, and you're all set. Because uh, you've seen this happen out in Michigan where people have done it poor design job, or they chose to using weaker poles and. The, Weaker the, meaning uh, less expensive, right? Yeah, less expensive yeah. poles or smaller diameter poles. And when they got those micro bursts, it just came through and snapped them like toothpicks. And that's you're you're investing in a long term crop. Like I said, just like you see the vineyards of Connecticut and stuff like that. It's you might as well invest the money at the start correctly, even if you have to spend a little bit more. 
because it's going to benefit you down the road a lot more than having to replace stuff or fix stuff constantly with maintenance or giant repairs of replacing logs that broke in a windstorm or stuff like that. Because that's the one thing that you don't want to happen is when you have a bountiful crop that's getting ready to harvest and you have a line break on you or the pole breaks on you and as soon as that hits the ground, that pretty much that row is done. You're wow. not going to get that crop. Because um, it's... That's the thing. You don't clean hops when you harvest them. You When they're getting ready to pick, they get to a certain dryness. You pick them, and then you got to dry them more just to preserve them. So you're not running them through a mist shower or anything else like that because you want to get the moisture away. So you don't want those hops hitting the ground. You don't want them getting dirty. No one, mm-hmm. want, no one wants a dirt beer. <laughs> right? <laughs> Very much is what it is. No, no, no one wants a dirt beer. is going to say, hey, man, yeah. give me some dirt hops. Yeah. Hook me up. Um, so I think that's pretty much on between growing. And like I said, there's just on growing hops. And I, I even said this at my introduction on the workshop that we hosted last week is – You could spend a whole weekend, a whole week of seminars and discussions and still have more to talk about after that on all different aspects of putting in a hop yard, growing hops, different varieties, harvesting, drying, pelletizing, all of that. And I I think we did a decent job last week fitting it in an afternoon. Like I said, it's like I'm, I'm always interested in anyone that has questions or stuff like that. It's I'm always willing to help people out, future farmers out or farmers diversify their farm into hops. Because um, it's it's one of those crops that it's it's not like zucchini. You can plant the seeds in the ground and a few months later you're harvesting and you're all set. And it's, it's that year. It's long-term investment. It's like tobacco growing. Right. Um, it's Which being, the state has a history of as well. Exactly. It does. It does. Um, and some of them actually would be set up to do dwarf varieties down the road with the, the short poles that they have. They usually run that short trellis system on them and they'd be all set if they wanted to diversify. Sweet. Which we're seeing some of them being interested already and expressed interest last year and then this year as well. Um, so that would be nice to see. Because tobacco actually, I think it was last year was the first year... Connecticut tobacco had an excess of they didn't run out wow. which I I know a lot of people might not know history on Connecticut tobacco or stuff like that but it's one of the most desirable crops of tobacco that people use worldwide that gets exported out of the state to be used in roles like even in like between like Cuba or Central America all of that using these rolls for the cigars and stuff like that. And just because people have the trend of people aren't smoking as much or doing e-cigarettes and it's to have an excess of that, that's showing something that's showing the shift of agriculture, especially with how long-term history tobacco was in the state. So that's why you see some of these farmers looking to diversify and maybe getting into hops. Because they got the beautiful soil up there. They got phenomenal soil up there. Like growing tobacco really well, then the soil must be really good. Exactly. But after you grow hops, should we get into pelletizing? Well, let's get into picking. We'll do picking. Okay. Let's do harvesting. How? I mean, so you, you, you know, you. You worked a deal out with Mother Nature, you know, you you were able to kind of balance and maintain. Yep. You got a nice bounty 
Now, for picking... How do you get the hops? The harvest is going to vary from variety to variety. Because some varieties are early August harvest. Some are mid-August harvest. Some are late August. Some are early September. So that whole spectrum there... And this is going back to that list I was telling people of when you're making the list for your what you're going to plant. You don't want to choose all your varieties so they come in all at once you want it so they're spaced out because when they're ready to harvest to pick you have a week week and a half window to pick that harvest otherwise they get too dry and they're going to start falling apart on you before you can dry them and pelletize them and after you pick them from the plant and this is the even a kicker on top of that You have a 24-hour, 40-hour window, depending on the variety, to get those dry if you're not using them fresh, if the brewery is not using them fresh, which in most cases, they're oh not. God, you're going to have to dry it somehow. You do like a giant dehydrator, and os, uh, that's what we have on the farm that we're building. Uh, University of Vermont has excellent designs online of building uh, oast and out of plywood and fans. This is like if you have an acre or less, even a few acres, depending on how your varieties are spaced, could easily handle that before you have to start using a heat source to dry them out. Um, it also depends where you are. Uh, is your environment where you're in a valley and you have like the misty mountains and the that meadow valley fog until noon, until it burns off, or are you dry from when the sun comes up? is going to affect how quickly these are going to dry before you bag them and seal them before you go send them out to be pelletized. And that's a whole science on top of that. Like I said, we were talking about doing seminars on all this. I saw a guy last December do a whole hour seminar on just drying hops. And me watching the audience faces was was hilarious because like, yeah, it's people, farmers, entrepreneurs watching this guy. I was understanding what he was saying, and he had just some people like a blank slate look on them, <laughs> not understanding relative humidity and all of this and drying. They're like, well, if I'm putting heat on it, I'm trying to dry it. Why does it matter what the humidity is outside? I'm just looking. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It was it was an interesting crowd. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that's a whole other aspect because you could grow a great crop, and then you got to dry it if you're not going to use it fresh. And... If you don't dry it quick enough, because usually you want to dry it ideally within five to eight hours, depending on the varieties. Um, James, James up at the Experimental Station uh, was even saying this in his in his talks. Um, and they're having difficulties when we had that really hot, humid summer. I think it was two years ago. Yeah, it was. It took them um, on metal grates in their propagation greenhouse with fans almost a week a week time to dry their hops and yeah they still made out all right but that's that's really is too long but because it's so humid and they didn't have a heating source to put to it to dry them out and everything that's why it took so long now, do you think someone could come up with like a big i mean is this an opportunity for someone to come up with a huge like for drying dehumidifier with like a conveyor belt machine before it goes into the drying to like something too. Well, there's where you set up your your oyster, your drying ovens is you're gonna want it so it's in a cool area and stuff like that to begin with. And usually, each farmer should have this on their farm 
especially because, like I said, as soon as you pick, you got to do this within 24 hours, 48 hours before they start breaking down and degrading and the crops quality goes down. And I've seen people do actually the book that's right next to you. Uh, they have pictures their oh, first year, their first year, they grew hops, uh, Diedrich and his wife, they did in their living room on the rug. They put a giant blue tarp with room fans and that's how they dried theirs. Oh really? And there's actually a picture of it in there too. Yeah. But wait, but you know, it, but it all it can't varies. Be, that won't work in human conditions. No, no. Because so you're, that's... you're not drying, you're just passing around the wet yeah, moisture. Yeah, and that, that's that's why it took James and them so long to dry theirs a few years ago up at the experimental station. It took a week instead of doing like the five, nine hour ideal time. And coming as a farmer, farmers know they have to adjust things to suit their particular farm or where it is situated and everything. That's why I'm saying it's like uh, the guy that was giving the lecture on drying alone, they're up in upstate Mass, and their valley that they're in, uh, very moist, and pretty much they're like the Misty Mountains until, like, noon. Wow. Yeah. So you can only imagine, he said sometimes he's up until, like, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night after they pick drying, running the drying ovens, because of how he's got to combat sometimes the days, how the moisture is. And that's with applying heat to them. Oh, man. <laughs> so imagine doing that if they didn't have a heat source. Oh, yeah. Damn. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, um, all right, so this summer, yeah. your varietals, and what is the harvesting calendar look like? This summer, the acre that we put in, that acre we're not going to get pretty much anything from because we chose to grow the roots first, uh, get them really situated. So next year, as soon as we tie them, they're going to shoot up. And you're going to have a nicer yield for the second year rather than if you grew them regularly the first year and the second. Uh, we took a chance with that, but that's okay. The test yard is going to have a decent amount, but the varieties are spaced out. So some will come. I think I have one or two that's early August, one or two that's mid, and one or two that's end of August. I think one that's in between the end of August and beginning of September how they're spaced out. Now, do you keep a calendar somewhere? Or is yeah, just, so there's... Just... It's, it's, it's mostly for me, it's in my head because I'm, that's my main... One of the main things I'm in charge on for the farm uh -huh. be, between my three brothers, myself, and then my parents. We all have our special fortes and that's one of the crops I'm in charge with because my oldest brother and I, we mainly do the field aspect. Uh, we all help with everything, but that's what we personally enjoy and what we specialize in. So I have a general idea of when they should be ready. And of course, Mother Nature is going to change it from year to year. If it's really dry and they might come a little quicker, if you irrigate them correctly and stuff like that, they might come a little quicker and dry out quicker. Or it's really a moist year or it's a cool year. They might come later. So it's going to vary. And that's with like any farming and everything. Some years you have fresh corn by the 4th of July. Other years you don't have it. Sometimes you get tomatoes early in the year. Other times they come later. Right. It all goes with how Mother Nature is and everything. Now with the cool nights and everything, a plant that usually likes nice and warm, when you get those cool nights... Uh, it will sometimes shut those plants down and limit their growth and everything. We've been seeing that like with the, the, the cucumbers, the squash, and the cucumbers on the farms. Uh, with hops, generally they, they like it nice, hot, dry, and going. Those cool nights, I won't be surprised. It helps. Uh, it hinders them and shuts them down a little bit. But like I said, 
hops just started growing commercially again in the state of Connecticut last year. So we're not sure on large scale with how Connecticut's climate has changed from the end of the 1800s to now, how that's going to affect doing large scale farming or commercial farming, I should say, uh, for that crop. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things, like I said, it's Mother Nature is, when you're a farmer, you're always at Mother Nature's mercy. Some years and sometimes the year, she's very gracious. Other times, She's just she's, flip, she's flipping you the bird. She's a and bitch, she man. Exactly. And like, that's the thing. That or she sends like some of her pesky critters that come and eat everything at night. <laughs> it could have been very bountiful. And then you wake up the next day and there's a bite out of this one, a bite out of that one. Like you've seen like peppers and tomatoes and stuff right. like that. And it's like, damn. <laughs> so be a farmer, you know, five generations, you have to have, I mean, this shows inside the passion. Yeah. To, to be a passionate farmer, you have to be passionate about what? About the land, the soil, the relationship Every, like, between when, all of Mother Nature's exactly. uh, creatures. Like, when, when you're a farmer and people that get into farming when they're first generation sometimes don't realize this. A farmer is a steward of the land and you work with the lands you work with nature that's one thing my brothers especially we've learned we grew up with the farm nature being caretakers of it and we all went to do higher education to help bring that knowledge back Back. and new techniques updated techniques like for instance drip irrigation conserving water you apply it with the drip irrigation right to the plants, and you're not wasting so much or sh- shooting water overhead where it all gets it's lost out right. of evaporation. It goes right to the plant. So that's one way of working with nature being a steward of the land, being smart, water cons- conservation, stuff like that. Another thing is working with your um, uh, your boundary buffers for the fields. That way it's not all open field, but you have like a woods line that helps window prevent wind erosion and soil erosion stuff like that knowing all right this tree line might have to fix prevent limbs falling down on the crops or maintaining so that way nothing falls down on our workers or tractors that we're doing but we want to keep it there that way it's that wind buffer or it prevents the soil erosion and stuff like that so you're always working with your land and especially like with you you can't just like Farm the land, farm the land. You got to be able to realize some pieces you might have to rest for a year or two or longer um, and help replenish the nutrients in it. And some people just want to go yield, yield, yield. I got to do the most I can, but don't realize if they rest that land for a little bit, it's going to benefit them down the road. And you see that trend. Doing it smart from the get go. Long-term investment is going to help out rather than just going for that short-term investment. It's just like resting your body. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like sometimes your body just (laughs) says, dude, I got to lie down. Well, it's the same thing. Like if you're you're working out or trying to build muscle and stuff like that, you can't just go boss the wall. You got to rest the day. You got to do it smart. Yeah. And it's the same thing like with this, this livelihood, this occupation. But yeah, so we did the picking. We did the harvesting. Did the drying. Should we do the pelletizing? Because this farm's got a special pelletizing feature. All right, let's do that. So looking when I was getting into hops and helping putting together Connecticut Hop Growers Association, looking at the infrastructure that's what is there for Connecticut, there is there was no 
facility for pelletizing hops in Connecticut before this year. Before, you had three facilities in upstate New York. Well, two upstate New York and then one by the Great Lakes uh, that were options for Connecticut farmers. And you're looking at a four-hour to five-hour drive in a, a reefer truck, a refrigeration truck, uh, to get your crop up there. And you're doing a round trip to drop stuff off and then a round trip again to pick it up. And That's then a lot of gas. A lot of gas, <laughs> a lot of travel time. And the kicker is you're doing that for each each crop harvest, depending how you have it, you're networking with the, the brewers and stuff like that and your orders and everything. So you might be doing that multiple times, uh, round trip twice for each of those crops. And you got to make sure it's all dry and ready to go to put into the pelletizing machine because it's too moist. You got to dry it. Otherwise, it will clog the machine. And these places do not always have a free um, dryer available. So it might be sitting there moist. It might degrade a little bit. And then if you have a contractor brewery waiting for it, then it might be, ah, crap. So I went and I've been working with the state of Connecticut. I applied for a grant for my farm, for DeFrancesco's farm. And we uh, just learned this past week that we were awarded the grant for our hot pelletizing facility. And we can actually build the facility and put the machine in. And hopefully, by the by the middle of this harvest season for hop growers in the state, it will be available at compatible prices. That's local. Where most places that are raising hops in the state right now are half hour, 45 minutes away versus four or five hour trip. Mm-hmm. That could easily be made in the same day. And possibly how the breweries are lined up in the state. Maybe that second trip, the breweries might come down and pick their hops up. Or it might be able to work something out to deliver and stuff like that. Rather than doing that round trip twice, less gas. Yep, less better, time. Less time. So it's better for the farmer, cheaper for the farmer. Still at the same price that they'd spend for, pellet, for the pelletizing fees. Because we got to keep them the same compatible price as the ones up in New York. And it's just nice to have that relationship and to have someone that's passionate on hops, on brewing, to build something like that. Because you know they're going to be involved and into it rather than someone that's going to be like, I'm going to set this facility up because I see hops are coming in. But that's just their business. They don't have that farming connection or that personal connection. This is coming up from the roots. Exactly. They're rooted into. And and the thing is too, it's like some people are like, oh, is hops a fad? Or is beer a fad? We're, We're fourth generation. My brothers and I are fourth generation. We're raising the fifth generation right now. I easily have 40 plus more years to go on this farm. So I'm always going to have that facility running. Because I have my hops growing, and everyone's always welcome to come see me for that. I'm always willing to help people mm-hmm. with, with their crop rather than they're having to go somewhere else, out of state, or stuff like that. And the other plus side is, in the works, in the town right over from us, um, we're working with, I, I don't think I could reveal too much, but we're working to get a testing data analysis facility in for the hops. Um, cause th- this, this turned into originally after a farmer has their hops processed, um, breweries need a data analysis sheet. Uh, if you homebrew or you're a brewer yourself, oh, this, this is really important. Um, and th- th- this is very important. Very like you've seen this at the different workshops. It's a must. 
Yeah. Breweries, brewers will not accept your hops if they don't have this information because they got to take your hops and put it into a formula to make their beers out to come correctly. And this goes involves into the alpha acids, the beta acids, uh, the lupin oils, all of those. It's a quick data analysis um, that you produce this spreadsheet and it gives the brewers this knowledge. Like even if you you homebrew and you see on the packet of like a Cascade or Ch- Chinook or Centennial, you see alpha percent. Uh, sometimes it has the beta underneath and stuff like that. Those are some of the two basic numbers in this data analysis that is a must need. And before this facility that's going into the works right now, you'd have to send your stuff out to the University of Vermont or Cornell University or out to uh, University of Michigan to have it tested. And usually you're going to add like weeks time period to get back and brewers like i want to use your stuff i need these numbers so i can put them in my equations whereas we pelletize your stuff now in the state Mm -hmm. at my farm i could easily grab your samples run them right over to the people that i know that have this facility and within the same day you will have your numbers cool now is that university of michigan or michigan state um michigan state michigan state yeah I think, yeah. But um, that's that's cool. Exactly. To, to cut that between the travel time for shipping out everything and then weighing on the data analysis, that's a must that you need yeah. for brewers, home brewers, the big guys. It's amazing how we're getting this infrastructure into the state. I love being a part of it, helping people. Because not only like it helps my own farm with the crop I'm raising, but helps all the breweries too. Because breweries want to know, are the hops are getting off Lupin Exchange or whatever the source is? The sheets that they get, is this really what's on the sheet and what's there? Of late, uh, because of the shortages and everything, sometimes the numbers are weird. And having a facility in the state that could actually test this, it's like, hey, let's let's just spend 20 bucks or whatever the fee might be 30 bucks or whatever and run the the test to make sure our equation's right because if you're doing a large 90 barrel batch and the numbers aren't right that's a lot of beer to mess up on (laughs) 90 barrels is a lot of beer to mess up on oh yeah because at that point you're to put in perspective some people if you you go on like a tour at some of the breweries in the state um these big vats you're not dealing with just ounces of hops or a few pounds of hops you're sometimes dealing with pounds on pounds depending on the recipe of hops going into this uh sometimes 100 pounds or plus easily between all the varieties you're using and if anyone's done simple chemistry, trying to calculate the IBUs that you got to do and the different alpha acids that are in those hops and everything, and at the right moments you got to add to them, yeah. it's it's it, it's it's not just a cooking process; it's a scientific process that goes into it, especially when you get to that large scale. Um, so, so you have yeah. to be correct going Ex- in. Exactly, you need to know your numbers going in. Um, otherwise, you might have a 90-barrel batch that's like, hey, it's an experiment batch we're going to promote <laughs> rather, than your, <laughs> rather than your regular batch. <laughs> I want to wrap this episode up because you're leaving for a trip tomorrow. I want you to talk about what uh, your expectations are Okay, okay. Uh, for the trip, you know, your hopes. We're going to 
regroup when you return yep. and see if you kind of hit those. Oh, yeah. Like we were saying before, I'm, I'm taking a trip tomorrow to England for uh, five days or so. And it's business trip to go see British Hop uh, Growers Association over there um, and see their their hop yards, their, their varieties. Because they have very similar climates to what we have here in the yeah. state, as we were talking about before with... Hey, this is New England. New England, yeah, exactly. We're <laughs> um, going back to the motherland. Exactly. Sorry. And it, it's funny because, like, back like I was talking even before, in the 1800s, they had a shortage because of climate weather issues, and they brought hops back to right. for their breweries, and they normally don't do that. So I'm going to work on things for the Connecticut Hop Growers Association to, so that hopefully we can work something out for our Connecticut farmers to be able to raise these varieties, some mostly are dwarf varieties that rather than the traditional tall trellis, they're a short trellis of 10 feet tall. Uh, some are done in traditional V-style growth. Some are done hedge growth style. And this would be good for like a, a small farmhouse brewery that exactly. doesn't have a lot of, that just wants to set aside a half an acre or something and... And doors would be easier to maintain. Right? Exactly, because that harvest. way, harvest especially, because you, you could actually walk down the rows with a machete and cut the top, cut the bottom, not have to worry about getting ladders, whereas the tall trellis, you're going to have to get on one of those trucks or a tractor or a ladder to cut everything down. And it's, it's they're more compact, easier to harvest. So I see some people looking into going to pick your own hops with the, the, these store varieties, because people don't have to worry about people climbing up. Right. And it's... I can very easily see good things coming out of this. Because these varieties that we're looking in are very nice. They're amazing varieties that uh, between the bitterings, the flavorings, the aromatics, there's a nice mixture. And I've been working with the Connecticut Brewers Guild because uh, I know Justin, the president, one of the owners down at Thimble Island's brewery. And we've been working and one idea is to help promote the idea of these varieties in the state is to get test sample batches. Right, you're talking of, about the of, dwarf varieties? Yeah, of, okay. of the varieties that we're looking in, between the dwarf varieties, even the tall varieties that might be uh, there. There's a selection of varieties that we're looking at right now, and of these varieties, we're going to get samples for the Connecticut Brewers Guild. They're going to do experimental batches, so that way the breweries in the state could see how these varieties are they could start getting ideas and be like hey that, that's a good one to plant hey i know how to do this and that that way the hype is there and we could see the acreage that we'd have to do for nice. these varieties and the demand that's Indeed, there the demand. and it helps with us doing our business relations for um showing this is this is the demand that we have for it we have people that are really interested in using this and and that way it, it helps all the farmers that are going to be involved into it uh, that are well, that are involved that. with the Connecticut Hop Growers Association. I love that. I so mean, it's 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 going to be a very fun trip. I'm very excited to see the hop yards. Well, uh, hey, it's been great. We're going to talk about your adventures when you get back. We got episodes down the line. I want to talk about your uh, magnificent home brews uh, and really get into a lot of the stories behind them. The I just opened those. in the middle of. Uh-huh. Uh, in the middle of this episode, I opened, uh, opened Four Brothers to Tractor's Blood. And uh, I love the labels here. You know, it has a little snippet of the story on it. Ever wondered what makes a tractor run while tilling Acer's field in 
preparation for the spring planting? Enter Tractor's Blood, our farm stout that will keep you running all day, just like the heavy-duty machinery we use when the job needs to be done. And oh, Tractor's yeah. Blood is running through my veins right now. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> that was a good one. It was um, a good one. And I, I definitely also want to make a date to do uh, some hop picking. Oh, yeah. Because that, that, that's a whole other ballpark of when you pick that hop, the aromas that come oh, with those yeah. fresh hops. And they just cling to you. Mm. And it's like one of those things where a person just wants to come up and just hold you all day because it smells so good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll be giving hugs that day. <laughs> All right, so another edition of uh, Inside the Passion of Brew. Lamont here with Alex, and you're going to be hearing a lot from us. Yeah, oh, yeah. We, we have a lot of stories to tell. So I'm loving this. I'm, like, so happy. Hey, I, I am, too. It's great. I, I, I'm just glad people are so involved and passionate about getting into hops, the farming, the brewing, the relationship between the farmers and the right? brewers. Because before last year, you really didn't have these ingredients that the brewers could use from the state. Yeah, um, cool. And it's amazing seeing how the relationship's working so well. And the community is always so friendly. I know. And the community. I mean, the it's, craft brew community here is the very tight community. Yep. Uh, we're going to be meeting a lot of uh, the members of, this co- of the community as we take a deeper dive. Uh, I just want to give a shout out because uh, your bulldog... Has been, I mean, he's been asleep, snoring through this whole thing, like right under the tripod. I mean, he's just (laughs) kicking it. So if you heard any snoring in the background, uh, yeah, what's his name again? Guinness. (laughs) Guinness! (laughs) He's an out. Love it. Oh, yeah. All right. right. Signing out. Until next time. Hey, it's Lamont of InsideThePassion.com. Thanks for listening. If you haven't had an opportunity to check out our website, InsideThePassion.com, hit it up. Each episode is supported with a dedicated webpage with photos and links. And you can also browse some of the other categories, brew, music and art, or rhythm and voice at InsideThePassion.com.